0: Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, we're going to start in verse uh, 13 down to verse 27. When you preach chapter by chapter, passage by passage through books, you come across stuff like this passage, which is a genealogy. And if you're honest, when, if you're reading through, you skip over this. Why would you read it? Who cares who Kohath's father was? Right? You believe it's true, but you don't really see any. You sort of say, okay, I believe this next section is true, let's just skip over it. So when you preach from it, you have to sort of, you can't just do that. You can't just skip over stuff. So we're going to preach from it, and I think there's a lot to be gained from it, but it's going to take a little bit of a careful reading. So the context before it is in verse 12, uh, the previous passage, Moses had gone to Pharaoh, like God told him to, and and said, let my people go. Instead of letting his people go, Pharaoh made it worse for him. It was actually beating some of them to death. And so Moses, so the, the, the Israelites uh, curse Moses. So Moses goes to God and says, you failed. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. I uh, can't do it. So God says, I'll take care of you. Go back and tell him. And Moses basically says, I can't do it. Tells God that he can't do it. He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I don't have the ability to go back to Pharaoh. My own people won't listen to me, so I can't do it. Which is sort of a low mark in Moses' life. He's already seen the miracles. He's already met with God. God is now speaking to him again. And Moses is bringing up the same excuses that he brought up the first time, which is, I don't have the ability to speak well. Even after everything has happened. And at this point, we take a break from the story. So the story is Moses going to Pharaoh can't do it. Tells God he can't do it, and we're going to find out in the next chapter that he does go back. But between those two, between this and chapter seven, there's a a narrative pause, and we get the family history of Moses and Aaron. It's sort of a weird thing, but it tells us something about the context. So the family and culture are integral and powerful parts of, of Moses' life. Family and culture. And culture is made up of a bunch of families. They're powerful. Your family and your culture has shaped you in ways you don't even realize and are still dealing with and will still affect you for the rest of their lives. God shows that the family context of his leaders, in this passage, is complicated, which shows us how God operates and how he chooses his family. So as we're looking through this, we're going to have to do a little bit of work. The Bible doesn't just present itself in a way that 21st century Americans can understand right off the bat. So we've got to do a little bit of work, but that's why we're here. Illustration to help. This is Thanksgiving week, and this happens to be a message on the family. Perfect, right? It's not really the Thanksgiving message you're going to want to hear, though. Uh, it's nothing really good about families. Thanksgiving dinner. In American culture is usually an interesting event. You usually meet with people you haven't seen in a while. Uncles, cousins, aunts. You see them sometimes, but then you all gather around the dinner table and it, I don't know about you, but it always seems that there's a few things people like to talk about. Politics, religion, sports, sort of safe topics that everyone agrees on, right? So family dinners often become either very heated or very superficial. Why? Heated because people don't see politics the same way. And your crazy uncle has a conspiracy theory about everything. And your cousin has decided to be an anarchist and do all those sorts of things. So what do you do? You either argue with them or you don't talk about anything. Talk about the weather, the food. It makes for awkward uh, uh, times together sometimes why do you have them why do we have thanksgiving dinners it's family it's what you do you didn't decide to have it you were told to have it you didn't decide your family you were told to have family and you were told which family members were yours so you gather around the family dinner table and thanksgiving dinner with a whole bunch of different people and you try to get along And it can be very entertaining, boring, whatever. Depends on which table you're sitting at. Or maybe you don't have a lot of family, and so Thanksgiving dinners are lonely. So what happens here, this passage is about family. It's about gathering as a family and about the effects that your family has on you and how God works in that. So let's look at the first thing. Putting Moses and Aaron into context. That's what this is doing. You see, up to this point, we don't really know much about their backgrounds. Moses and Aaron just sort of get picked by God. Well, who are they? Who is Aaron? Really, this, fa- this passage focuses on Aaron. So let's read the text. The family of Moses and Aaron. Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them a command. And then verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the heads of Moses and Aaron's uh, houses. They're brothers, if you didn't know that. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and Israel is Jacob. So don't think of the nation of Israel. Think of the person named Jacob, who was also called Israel. So this is the sons of the firstborn of the man named Israel were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon, who was the secondborn, were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi, thirdborn, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137. The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath were Amram, that's Moses', that's Moses dad, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. Now Amram took for himself jochebed his father's sister, that would be his aunt, as his wife. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Izhar, that'd be Moses' uncle, were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself uh, Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithnamar. And the sons of Korah, or Asser, Elkanah, and Abiasath. I think I'm doing pretty good so far, right? Would you agree? Okay, I had to practice. These are the family of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Pudiel, his wife, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's house of the Levites, according to their families. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, according to their armies, These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. Okay, so we got through that. What's the point? Now we know their family history. Who cares? Part of this passage, part of understanding this passage, is starting with the belief that the Bible is true. Is the Bible true? Who gave us the words of the Bible, ultimately? Is the Bible God-breathed? Yes. Is every word God breathed? Yes. That's what we believe as a church, which means that every name in here was selected for a reason. Now, we don't know the reason, but there is a reason. We don't care about genealogies, but the Bible doesn't care that we don't care. You see, part of preaching and part of Bible study and part of being a Christian is saying what I think is important doesn't matter. And whether I think this passage is important doesn't matter. God thinks it's important. The modern world has what, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. And the new iPhone doesn't help. If you don't have a new iPhone, then you have an old iPhone. It doesn't matter how many months ago it came out. Anything old is bad. Anything new is good. The older, the worse. That seeped into our bones. So the old ancient ways of doing things from a couple thousand years ago are, are to our opinion, beneath our ways. The Bible says, who are you? Who are we? What this passage calls us to do first is say, just because you were born in America in the 20th century, doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make you better than the way they wrote back then. Genealogies were a normal way of writing in the ancient world. And who's to say it wasn't better? If we think they should have done it differently, that's pride—pride pride in 20th-century America. What we should say is, let's put aside our view of how things are. Let's look at the way they did things because it could be better. And since God wrote it, He wrote it for a reason. That's what being a Christian—that's what believing the Bible and study and listening to expository preaching—it forces you to put your opinions aside and say, let's take it from their point of view which is a great thing to do on a regular basis. We wouldn't say that 20th century America is better than every other generation, would we, in, in the past 6,000 years? Would we say that, that the past 100 years is better than the previous 6,000? So by not saying that, we have to go back and say, let's see how they did it. And let's look at it from their point of view. The point of this passage is to show, one of the, point, the main points is to show the legitimacy of Aaron and Moses. See, everyone reading this story already knows how this ends up, right? Aaron and Moses lead Israel out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea into their own land. Okay, the question is, who are Aaron and Moses? Because later God's going to set up the Levites as the priests, and Aaron's going to be head of those. So what God's doing here is he's saying, here's who I want to choose, and here's why I chose them. Now, it's funny because what was the previous context? Moses says to God, I'm not physically able to do this. So what does God do? He says, let me give you a review of your own history, your physical history. So one, people know you're a Levite, which was my way of doing things, but there's other reasons. It shows the historical context of God's plan. God wasn't making things up as he went. So in this, it starts with Israel, uh, Jacob, hundreds of years before, and it ends with Phineas, who hadn't been born yet. It's, it's giving us a perspective that stretches out past Moses and Aaron on either side. It's saying, look back a little bit. God's not working in the moment. He's working in every moment, altogether, together, forward and backwards. It's giving us a historical context of God's plan, which shows us a little bit about God. He doesn't react. He plans. He decrees. He acts. And it doesn't matter whether it was 100 years before or 100 years later. So that's what this genealogy is telling us. It's not obvious, is it? It's not what you thought of when you read it. So you st- take a step back. The names aren't so much important at this point as what it's saying about these people, Did they go on either side of Moses and Aaron. And it's also saying, so first of all, we see the context of Moses and Aaron. But in a bigger context, who are these people? And why are they in the Bible? They're God's people. This is God's family. These are the children of Israel, God's chosen people. This is showing us who God views as family in the Old Testament. So, since they're not literally descendants of God, they were chosen from out among other people. Why'd God choose these? How does God choose his family? See, think about Thanksgiving dinner. Did you choose your family? Maybe your wife, maybe not. But you didn't choose the rest of them, did you? They just showed up. God doesn't, he's not bound to that. He chose his family. He chose all these people. How did he do it? Wouldn't you like to know how God picks who's at his Thanksgiving dinner? That's what this passage is going to tell us about. Because the genealogy is not exhaustive. The numbers actually don't match up in this passage. The generations don't match. You know why? Because genealogies weren't about telling The family tree, they're telling a story about the family. You chose out names in a genealogy to tell something about your family. God chose out these specific names. He didn't choose out everybody's name, which makes it significant the names he did choose. Did you realize? You probably didn't realize that when you read that. He left out people's names on purpose. So the genealogy is selective. Here's one thing it tells us. These are individual people. If there was ever a problem in our modern society, it's the anonymity of the masses. How many people do you know that live on your street? How many people do you drive past on the highway that basically don't exist to you? Do you ever feel like you're that person? There's 500,000 people that live in this county. During the day, there are a million people that, that live and work here. Who are you among that? You ever feel like you're nobody? Even in a small group like this, you may feel like you're just one face among the crowd. But look what this genealogy is telling us. God knew their names. These were individual people. He didn't just say all the people of Israel or all the families. He said specific names. Rikin says, to us, it may not make a difference that the sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi, but to them, it made all the difference in the world. These were real people. Can you imagine if you were Molly? You got your name in this list. That's significant. Remember that these are not fake names. These are real people. So for these people, their names are written down by God. God knew their names. He knew individual people's names. He says it meant that they were included in the people of God, that God actually knew who they were. The biblical genealogies, Show the importance of named individuality. Named individuality. Has anybody ever forgotten your name? How does that make you feel? Okay. It's normal, isn't it? What about when someone remembers your name? Oh, okay, you actually, t- I'm important to you. I'm not just the face in the crowd, I'm somebody. That's what God's doing here. He's remembering people's names out of millions of people. There's probably 2 million people alive at this time when he's writing this, not to mention all the people who had died. He's picking out individual names. Where'd he get those from? He knew them. He knew their names individually. And he said, let's see, of all the names that I know, let's pick out these few. Let's pick out these people. They weren't random. But also, these people are diverse. So we're talking about how God chooses his family, the kind of people he chooses. He chooses a diverse people. Look in verse 15. And the sons of Simeon were Jimiel, Jamin, Obad, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Now, why is that in there? You see, God chose that specifically. He could have skipped over it. Do you know that the Canaanites were not on God's side? They were not the Jewish people. Why do you include that name here? So for all of history and all of eternity, when you read the story of God's people, you knew that there was a Canaanite among them, that they all did not come from the same person, that there was ethnical differences, serious ones, ones that people died and killed for. The Canaanites and the Israelites, they didn't get along all the time. So what God's doing here, he's saying, I'm choosing that this Canaanite woman be known as part of my family. But it goes further. Uh, down in verse 25, Eleazar, the Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Pudiel as his wife, and she bore him Phineas. Okay, who cares? Here's why Phineas is important. You know what the name Phineas means? It means black man. That's what it means. Ethiopian, if you will. It was a place that was south of Egypt. And in the Bible, you are often identified with where you came from. We still do that today, right? Talk about people from where they came from. He was named because he looked different. His skin was different, and they named him because of that. This is significant in the Old Testament because how are people people groups divided up in these tribal nations? What's this genealogy tell us? They all came from the same person. They were family bonds. They They were blood relatives, and blood relatives generally look like each other, don't they? Well, Phineas didn't. Phineas was black. He was Ethiopian. He was uh, Kush. He was Cushite, Southern Egyptian. Why is that significant? It's significant, first of all, because God put it in here. He chose Phineas and did not choose other people. He chose them for a reason. To say, even in the Old Testament, when it's an ethnic, ethnical group, God specifically says, now don't take that too far. In fact, if you're going to take it too far, let me take, walk you back a little bit and make it very clear that God's plan does not base itself on skin color. And now that may seem obvious to some of you, but it's not obvious for a lot of people. And it's not been preached from pulpits in America for a long time. This passage is God telling us something. He's saying if you make decisions based on skin color, you don't do things the same way I do things. You just don't. That's significant. And when we get down to what Phineas did, it's even more significant. Uh, gender, this is a patriarchal society. And in a patriarchal society at this time, there was the father and then there was property. That was it. Even the sons were not that great. Father owned everything. Women were property and even children were property. Why is God including women in his genealogy? No one would have cared at this time. What does that tell us? God doesn't make decisions based on what people care about. So if you don't care about it, God doesn't care. He puts these people in here to show what he's doing, not what we do. So he put women in here to show that there's a gender difference, that that women are named and specifically a part of his family. They were known. If you lived at this time, no one would care what your mother's name was or your sister's name. They wouldn't care, your wife. They only care what the man's name is. God doesn't work that way. So so transport yourself 3,000 years ago and realize how radical this statement is. So there's diversity here. but, But the most important thing in this passage is the moral divor- diversity. I, when I was reading this, and I imagine when you were reading it, when you get to some places like in verse 23, uh, or verse 20, now Amram, uh, that was Moses' father, took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister. That was his aunt. He married his aunt. My first reaction was to say, okay, how is this normal? This, this can't be as bad as it sounds. What cultural things make this okay? Why did I do that? Why did I try to make this into something respectable? Because I want to like these people. I want to think God's family is good. And so I try to twist things. God's not trying to cover anything up here. You know why he put that Jacobed was his father, that Amram married his aunt? Because it's weird. It's not normal. God would actually outlaw it. So why do he put it in because god doesn't care when people mess up in his family he doesn't have to hide it he doesn't doctor it so imagine that you are of german descent some of you may be german descent you do you should do the ancestor.com and you find out that your grandparent fought in the war world war ii here's the problem your family was still in germany at the time which means he was in the nazi army and it turns out he was an ss commander in charge of a concentration camp. So when you talk to people about your ancestry, you're going to say things like, I'm German. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like bratwurst, and craft beer, and I speak a little bit German, and like to go and wear those lederhosen, right? You tell people that kind of stuff, and you're sort of proud of it. What you don't tell people is like, oh, and my grandfather killed a million people. You just sort of leave that out, don't you? Yeah. Or your immediate family history. You got some people at your Thanksgiving dinner that you don't want other people to know about. God doesn't do things that way. He doesn't need to. So he lists people here. He'd a family that's so full of brokenness that it's shocking. Let's go through the list. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Let's look at Israel, Jacob. Who was Jacob? Jacob was a terrible person. He was a trickster. He was sneaky. He was a coward in a lot of ways. He's the head of the family. That's where it starts. It goes to Reuben. There's a story in the in the book of Genesis where Joseph goes out to tell his brothers that about a dream he had, and all the brothers decide to kill him except for Reuben. Great firstborn Reuben. He says, "Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in a well." Reuben's plan was to come back and save him. When he was away, they sold him into slavery. So Reuben's the good guy, right? Except that when he found that out, guess what he did? He lied. He, he took some garments, he took his robe and he covered it in blood, he took it back to his father and he told his father that Joseph had been killed. How's that for a family history? It's, why didn't he go get Joseph? When your brother goes into slavery, what do you do? When he, when he's sold into slavery that day, what do you do? You go find find him and get him back. Like, that's just obvious, right? What does Reuben do? He's like, it's too late now. Let's cover it up. Let's pretend like he's dead. Let's make him disappear. If you help cover up a a murder, do you go to jail? Yes. That's Reuben. It gets worse. Simeon, sons of Simeon and Levi, guess what they did? They actually wanted to kill Joseph and they actually sold him into into slavery. Moses' family were slave traders. God's family had slave traders and God's not even trying to cover it up. Would you want to cover that up? Did you ever see that episode of The Office where Andy finds out that his parents could have, his grandparents could have owned slaves? What did he try to do? He tried to hide that. He didn't want people knowing about that because it's terrible. God says, "Eh, there it is, that's who they are. Let's put it on display. Amran, Jochebed, they're related. uh, Aunt and nephew, they get married. And God describes it. Look at their children. Aaron has sons, Nadab and Abihu. Aaron, who would lead the priesthood and lead the people of Israel, what happened to uh, um, Nadab and Abihu? God killed them in front of everybody. Do you ever have problems with your kids? Put it in perspective. Aaron, the priest of Israel, had two sons that were so bad that God had to kill them in front of everybody. And God's like, oh, yeah, they're part of the family, too. Aaron was a terrible father, wasn't he? If you raise your kids in a way that they will get killed by God himself, you messed up. You just messed up. But it gets worse than that. Aaron had some cousins. The Kor- uh, he said the sons of Ishar, that was uh, Moses' uncle, were Korah. So Korah's his cousin. You have cousins? You have Thanksgiving, you meet your cousins? Guess what Moses' cousins did? They staged a rebellion that was so bad that God opened up the earth beneath them and ate them. They fell into the earth alive, it says, and they were covered up. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Imagine you're having a Thanksgiving dinner and your cousin makes a remark that's so bad that the ground opens up and he falls into it. What would you talk about later with people who are not part of your family? Not your cousins. What does God do? He says, oh yeah, Korah, that's part of the family. The korites they were so bad that they couldn't be allowed to live anymore. What's God doing here? He says, my family is more messed up than your family. Why are they so messed up? Because families mess each other up. When Jacob is your great-grandfather and your great-grandfather's tried to kill their brothers, guess what's going to happen to your family? When your cousins are staging rebellions and when your sons are trying to worship false gods, that's a dysfunctional family. And Moses and Aaron are right in the middle of it, contributing to it, being a part of the dysfunction. And God's like, in case anyone forgets how bad these people are, I'm going to write it in the Bible forever to let you know that God's family, chosen by him, is the worst family in the world, aren't they? Slave traders, murderers, idol worshipers, leading rebellions against God's people, instant execution. That's the worst family in the world, isn't it? God says, yeah, that's my family. But then at the end, there's an unexpected turn. And El Azar, Aaron's son, whose brothers were killed, took for himself one of the daughters of Pudion. She bore him Phineas, so the black man. You know what Phineas ended up doing? With this family heritage, he actually stood up and did the right thing. Some people came into the temple, to the tabernacle to worship a false god. Phineas took a spear and killed both of them. He led armies that, that fought for Israel. He, he brokered peace treaties between tribes that were, that were going to start a war. How did he end up doing that? His family was terrible. His brothers were killed. His dad let people worship false gods. His great-granddad was killing people. Where'd Phineas come from? I don't know, but I think the answer to this whole thing is God works in people in ways we can't see. For some reason, Phineas, who didn't look like the rest of the people, certainly didn't act like them, is still in the family tree. Here's the the overriding theme of all this. God's grace works in broken people. Why? Who Who else needs grace except for broken people? God doesn't need to help perfect people. He helps bad people. Phineas had a terrible upbringing. He had a terrible family. How did he make it out alive? It wasn't because of his dad. It wasn't because of his his great-granddad. It was because of God. So God's grace here, there's one consistent theme through all of these people. It's not their behavior. It's not their uh, treatment of each other. It's not their relationship. It's one thing. God made a promise to them. That's it. He made a promise to people that he would take care of them in spite of themselves. That's it. The one thing that draws all these people, that brings them into the family, is God's promise to them, not their behavior. God is faithful because of his promises, not because of people's character. Why are we faithful to people? Because they show themselves worthy of our trust. Because they're family. Because we do the right thing. God says, I made a promise, that's why I'm faithful. Okay, that was then. What about now? What about God's people now? This is what God said about them. What does he say about us? Would you like to know where you fit into the family tree of God's family? Isn't that the most important thing in the world right now? What God thinks about you? Well, here's some consistent things that come from this passage that are still true to us today. We're still chosen. God still picks who's in his family. You don't just show up. You don't just show up to dinner. You're not born into the family. You don't work your way into the family. God says, I will choose you to be in my family. Now, I know there's some difficulties about predestination or not, but here's what the Bible says. You are a chosen generation. This is 1 Peter. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're in God's family, do you know why you're in his family? Because he picked you. He chose you which leaves out every other reason that you might think you're in the family. You didn't go looking for it. You didn't seek God. God chose you for the foundation of the world. God's family now, what we call the Christian people, the church people, is more diverse even than this passage, which was a pretty diverse passage. It's more diverse. Revelation 7, 9 says, And after these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations... Tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How diverse is God's family? 100% diverse. It includes every bit of diversity that you can think of. So he doesn't just say, of all nations. Why? Because within nations, there's diversity. He doesn't say of all tribes, of all families, of all of every single distinction that you can make between people, God's got one of them. God's family is more diverse than your family. It's more diverse than you can imagine your family. You see, we are bound by space and time. We can't even imagine all the diversities. We don't even know the kinds of people that live before us or after us. God says, yeah, I'm going to have some of them too. You see the scope of God's chosen family, the diversity of it? And here's another thing that's still consistent. There's still a heritage of brokenness. I've got bad news for, for young parents. You are going to mess your kids' lives up. I've got bad news for children. Your parents are going to mess up your life. Like, no, 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 they're going to do okay. No, they're not. Train up a child in the way he should go when he's old and not depart from it. Yes. Anybody done that? No. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you are a sinner raising children, guess what's going to happen to your children? If you put a fish into dirty water, what happens to the fish? It gets dirty. You put a person into a broken family, what happens to the person? They get broken. Are you broken as a parent? Your kids are not going to escape that. Our families, look at this family here in the Old Testament. It it helped break each other. You are your family. And the Bible doesn't cover that up. When it says that he punishes those to the next generations, why? Do you have any problems that you've inherited from your parents? Anything that you do that your parents did that you didn't like? Why are you doing that? It's how you were raised. That moment as a new parent... When your spouse says you're being just like your dad and you, they usually say that to get under your skin, don't they? You are just like your mom. If it hasn't happened to the new couples yet, it will. And it's, no, how did that happen? It was the one thing I didn't want to do and now I'm doing it. Families break each other. Sin is in, the, is in, is in our blood and we transfer it and we raise them in a sin-filled nature I know that's terrible Thanksgiving talk, but it's real talk. It's how the world is. And if you want to know why you're so messed up, a lot of it's your parents' fault. But don't worry, you'll get a chance to do it to your kids too. It just goes right down the line. So God's family is full of people who've messed each other's lives up. That's okay, because it's not the first time. See, what's happened is there's strongholds set up. And I don't mean that in the charismatic way, but there are things the devil has put up in our lives. Uh, Eric May says a stronghold is a mindset, a value system, or a thought process that hinders your growth and you're exalting Jesus above everything in your life. A mindset. Do you think your family gave you a mindset growing up? Yes. There's a chance that that mindset is totally wrong. But you still have it and you still pass it on to your kids. See, families build systems, and and families build systems that affect culture. We use the word systemic sometimes. What is systemic? It means it pervades all the systems. Why? Because there's bad people in all the systems. So when you are broken by your family, your dad mistreated you, or your mom ignored you, when you go to work, guess what happens? You take that with you, and now you can mess work up. You mess your marriage up. You mess your family up. You mess your church up. The sin spreads. That's the reality of it. So how do we fix it? You can't fix it. You can't fix it. If you're older, haven't you been trying not to be like your family? Has it worked? No, it hasn't worked. If you're a kid, you're growing up, aren't you trying not to be like your parents? How's that working out? It's not. We can't fix it. But that's okay because it's God's family. This is what supernatural things are about. It's about doing things that families can't do. So in this passage, we show God's faithful to his promise. The same thing has happened to us. We're now under a new covenant. What is a covenant? It's God promising to a bunch of broken people that he's going to take care of them. They can't be too broken. Are you a slave trader? Okay, you're good. Are you a murderer? It's okay. Are you a gossip? Are you proud? It's okay. God's family is diverse. It includes all kinds of sinners. What's the common theme? God is faithful to covenant, not character. You've got bad character. It's okay. Because God's faithful to covenant, not character. If you don't believe that, you're going to try really hard to fit in. You're going to work really hard to fit in. And your life's going to be miserable. And you're going to be proud or guilty or self-righteous or controlling until you realize that God doesn't deal with you on your character. He deals with you on the covenant. And what is the covenant? The covenant is God has one true son, one true family, and he cares for him with perfect love. He has one son and he perfectly cares for him with perfect love, except for one time. One time God rejected his own family. His own family was dying on the cross and cried out to his dad to help him. And God looked away, rejected him, turned away from his own family. Why? So that he could adopt us into that family. You see the kind of covenant we're in? God turns away from his own son so that he can adopt us as sons. Why are you a part of this family? One condition, give up everything. Give up your family. Give up your works. God has one condition for your to be a part of his family. Trust what Christ did. If you're holding on to something, it's not going to work. See, that's what the Bible says. It says repent and believe. It means turn away from you and turn to Christ. And if you do that, everything else is taken care of. Faith brings us into the family. Faith doesn't do anything. Faith has no value. What has value? The death of Jesus. And God says, my mercy will make a covenant with you where I'll take your worthlessness and I'll give you Christ's righteousness. That's a good deal, isn't it? It's almost too good to be true. We get treated like sons because Jesus was not treated like a son. That's a family you want to be in. A family that says, you can't be too bad. You can't mess up too much. You don't have to fit a standard. All you have to do is give up everything and trust Christ. Is that what we do as a church? You see, the church is God's family. Are you treating people in the church worse than God is? How does God accept us just as we are? How do we accept each other? We as a church are this family. No conditions except repentance and faith. No conditions. Do we accept each other as God accepts us? And how does God accept us? The same way he accepts Jesus. Do we accept each other with perfect acceptance? Do you love your fellow church members in the same way that Jesus loves you? Do you accept fellow church members in the same way you accept Jesus? Because God does. Look at the people in this church. And then look at Jesus. You should accept them equally because God does. He accepts us like he accepts Jesus. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God. How does God view us? Perfectly like Jesus. How do we view each other? Not the same, is it? We've got a higher standard than God. We want a different kind of family than God has. Don't put up standards that you can't keep. There's one standard. Give up everything. Trust Christ. If you are not doing that, you're not in the family. You're not in this list. You could be a good person. God's not part of your family. God has not chosen you. There's only one way to be in the family. God comes to you and says, trust me, and you do it. Now, let's do the same thing with each other. Give up on your family and trust God's family. Let's pray.